0: We're going to be in Colossians 2. Before we do, let's uh, pray together and then we'll look at that uh, passage together. Lord, we thank you uh, for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of your spirit that teaches and guides us and leads us into all truth. And so we pray this morning that as we open your eternal life giving word, that your spirit would come and teach us and guide us and lead us, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds to see more clearly who you are and the way that you've revealed yourself to us and what it means for us. We pray that we would just uh, leave here having seen you more clearly and that uh, all that is done and said this morning would just be to the praise of your name. That We'd be making much of you and what you've done. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, it should come to no surprise to you <laughs> as I say this, but in our country today, there is a wide uh, array of religious beliefs, uh, kind of all over the map. That's, that's probably not surprising at all. Uh, you see it in all different ways. I read an article actually this week uh, in, in the New York Times. It was it was online, so it was actually published in the New York Times a couple months ago. But they were talking about a growing uh, kind of uh, subculture, uh, a self-identification in the ways that people say what they believe today. And this growing kind of subculture that we're talking about is people who now uh, refer to themselves as spiritual but not religious. That that's actually now uh, a, uh, a group that is growing and growing depending on what study you look at. That's anywhere from 7% to almost 30% would identify themselves that way spiritual but not religious it's just kind of become the thing to say now when you start to kind of parse what that means you get a whole wide array of what that actually means even with under or within that that subheading but that idea of spiritual uh, or, or spiritual but not religious is growing in great numbers so much so, and that's where I say you have to kind of ask what people mean when they say that, is you see that with even in the church. People will say, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious, but I'm a Christian. And, and what they'll then say or what they'll mean or the way they will articulate it is that uh, I, I love Jesus, but I don't really care for the church Uh, they will say, I I really want to follow Christ, but all this other stuff I'm not too interested in. And they'll start to say that and they'll start to talk about it in different ways. And and as I read this article, one of the sociologists that they they quoted in there said uh, spiritual but not religious are usually pretty easy to spot because they always find God uh, in sunsets and on beaches. (laughs) And and what they meant by that is we kind of of chuckle at it because there's there's some humor in that. But we sang this morning. You are holy. You are mighty. I see you in the sun and the moon and the stars. They proclaim who you are. Scripture tells us that we do see God in creation. And so when people say, well, I'm, I find God uh, on the beach or in the sunset, there's some truth to that. It's it's calling out to an eternal God who made all things and holds all things together. And so there's some truth in that. And so we start to say this in different ways. Sadly, though, when we say. Uh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church or I don't really care about the church. What oftentimes people mean is they've been burned by a church at different times. And so they think of the institution uh, the hierarchy of a church and that. But as we say frequently, and I'll just remind you, we say this almost every week. The church is is you. It's people, right? The church is people, not this building or this place. It's people. And so when we say, well, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. That's a complete contradiction to following Jesus, because Jesus says If you you will know my disciples, by the way, they love each other. And so if you say, well, I don't want to have anything to do with God's people. I just want to be with Jesus. Well, you don't really want to be with Jesus because he tells you if you did, you would be with his people. And so it's kind of a contradiction in terms when you really think about it. But that it was interesting, that article. But that's a growing group. Uh, You look elsewhere in our culture and you see other ends of the spectrum. Maybe you have spiritual, but not religious on one side. Uh, On the other side, maybe you have religious, but not spiritual. Uh, We get into uh, we can start to really get into hard lines about what it means to be a believer, a Christian or whatever religion it is. And we start to build up structures around it Uh, within our own Christian subculture. Maybe it's to be a real true Christian. You have to have a certain translation of the Bible. Uh, I've met some people like that at different times that if you don't have the right translation, you're not doing it right. Or maybe we put it in different terms or in different ways. Maybe it's the the clothes you wear or the way you dress or where you go or the liturgy that you are most comfortable with or music or whatever it is. And we start to build up all these things around what it means to be a Christian. So you have this whole wide array, two opposite ends of the spectrum. And we start to build up these lists of what a true believer looks like and all these things and different stuff. It can get to be pretty exhaustive list, exhaustive and exhausting when you start to add all these things and all this stuff and what it looks like. And so I say all that this morning as we begin, because I just want to pose the question, how should we look at all that? How should we see that? I think as we open our text and we look at what we, we're going to look at here in Colossians 2 this morning, we're going to see that there is a, a wide spectrum and there's a whole bunch in between, but all of it is not new. Uh, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. In fact, what we're going to see is Paul's well acquainted with both ends of this spectrum. Uh, you, you see when you read in Scripture the way Paul identifies himself. He would probably be on the religious but not spiritual side at some point in his life when he talks about being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And I keep all the laws and I do all these things. That's his own way of talking about who he was before he met the risen Jesus. And that's what his life looked like. He also dealt with the other end of the spectrum, as you read, like in Corinthians, as he writes that letter to the church in Corinth. And they're very sensual and they do all these things and they're throwing off all these different kinds of rules and doing whatever they want. And so Paul's really dealt with both sides of it, and he's going to have some things to say, I think, for both sides of it right here in Colossians chapter two, as we look at that together this morning. And so I wanted to say, as as we think of God's word, as we come to it, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a church 2000 years ago, and it is vitally relevant for right where we are today. The things he says speaks right to the same heart condition that we see in our world today. He was dealing with then. And so I just just uh, I hope that gets your interest to see what Paul says here, that what he says really speaks a lot to where we are today. And so this is the way I want us to look at this this morning as we start, as we think about those extremes and those different ways we fall into kind of those traps of seeking to follow God. Is first is how do we uh, fall into those traps? What are the things that allows that to happen? Either this kind of hyper-legalism, and we'll talk about what that means, or this hyper, uh, I can do whatever I want and I don't need anyone else. Either one of those extremes. How do we fall into those traps? And then secondly, how do we begin to see this rightly? Because Paul's going to give us some things that help us to see that more rightly. And then next week, we're going to talk about how we begin to walk faithfully in the way God's called us to walk. We're not going to have time to get that. That was my three this week and about halfway through the week. It was like, if I'm going to hit all three, we're going to be here for like two hours. And so uh, we're just going to hit those first two and then we'll kind of pick up with that next week. And so here's the way I want us to start is just how do we fall into these different traps as we're seeking to faithfully follow God? And we can subtly slip into being on one side or the other of that. And so look at verses eight to twelve to begin with with me and what Paul says here. So we're going back. We covered eight last week, but we're going to start there. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And so if you just start right there at verse eight, just kind of recap to where we were and what we talked about last week as we were looking at this. Paul just says real clearly that that Christ is the center of all things and you can't see it rightly without him being the center. In fact, if you go back just a few verses in chapter two and verse three, he says that Christ is in him. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You can't see anything fully and rightly apart from Jesus. And so what he says and what he's dealing with with the church here is they're beginning to fall into human tradition to different things. They're adding things on. And Jesus is getting moved over to the side and he says that can't happen. That can't be the case. We can't go down that road where Christ is not the center of all things. And so that's what we were talking about last week. Problems arise when we slip into human tradition and man's wisdom and philosophy and all these things. And we remove God from the equation. And so this week, I want us to think about this picture of how we begin to slip into that. And the first thing I would say to you that Paul's kind of pointing us to here is oftentimes we can subtly slip into it by making it about the things that we do, things that are good, that point us to Christ. But instead of them pointing us to Christ, we make it all about the things that we focus on the shadow, as Paul will say in a few verses, instead of the substance, which is Jesus. And he gives us two very tangible examples here to help kind of flesh that out as he begins to talk and he begins to show us. Look at verse 11. He says, in whom also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Big crisis in the early church was did you need to become Jewish to become a Christian? right? Judaism, Christianity is a continuation of Judaism. It's all one religion all the way through. It's the way God's working and it's all those things and it's pointing forward to Christ. And so what they came to is, do we have people become Jewish, keep all these laws, be circumcised, do all these things, and then they become Christians, right? You see that that uh, debate coming up in the New Testament. You see it heavy in the book of Galatians because there were people coming in and saying that is the case. You have to do all these things To really be a true Christian. And we think from the context that that's maybe starting to creep into the church at Colossae. And so Paul says he talks about circumcision, but look at the way he talks about it here. He talks about your circumcision is a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He focuses on the spiritual reality of what circumcision was pointing to. When we talk about different commands and things God gives and he tells us to do, we're often talking about and he's going to use baptism as an example. Talk about that in just a second. But when we think on these things, those are outward visible signs that point us to an inward spiritual reality. But the point is the outward visible sign is to point us to the spiritual reality. And when we begin to make it all about the outward visible sign and we miss the inward spiritual reality of what God's doing, we've totally missed it. When we, when we focus on the shadow instead of the substance, we're going to run into problems. And so Paul's concerned about that here. And so you see him talking about uh, circumcision. But then in verse 12, he also talks about baptism. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. But then notice what he says through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. He's pointing you to the deeper spiritual reality of what baptism shows and symbolizes. Yes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God raised you to life in Christ. But that picture of baptism shows that. But it's not the, the point of it. It's to point you to the inward spiritual reality, the substance, which is Jesus. He says we want to make sure that we don't get lost in the acts and not what they're pointing to. Do you see that? And so it's important when we begin to think about them because God himself gave us these different things to do. They are important. They're part of our worship. They're part of our proclamation of who he is. They're part of our understanding and they're good things. That's where this can become so subtle. When we start to focus on good things God gave us, but we forget to the greater thing they point to, which is Jesus. And so we can do this in all different ways all the time. One thing that I would say could creep up on us as our body together, our family of faith together, is maybe communion. Communion is something that Jesus came up with. It is a good thing. I say that every week. This is not an idea that we came up with. This is something Christ himself instituted. He said, do this and remember it to me. And you come and you're celebrating that you now have communion with God, the father through Christ's sacrifice and what he's done. And so that takes a place, a precedent every week when we gather together. I know brothers and sisters that take communion once a month. I know some that take it once a quarter. There's some that take it uh, not kind of sporadically. They don't have a set schedule and they do it all in between. And what can happen is we can start to kind of think, well, we're doing it right and they're not doing it. We do it every week and it's all and we start to talk about us doing it in this way and we make it all about the symbol instead of what it means. And so we can start to make it take a greater place than it should because we're making it about the actual act instead of what it points us to. Now, I say all that I'm going to backtrack a little. We do do it every week and there's good reason I think we do it every week and we're going to continue to do it every week. And so but I want us to be careful when we start to put those in a place. Maybe they shouldn't be. Sometimes when we start to look at them that way, it's pointing us to Jesus It's pointing us to what he's done. And when we make it all about the act itself instead of the deeper spiritual reality, we can miss something. And so that's the first part. I'd say we slip into missing it as we make it all about the act itself instead of the deeper spiritual reality. It's a picture of something far greater. But then the second way we can begin to miss it, I think the way that's kind of behind that is we can start to use the acts that we do as a means of self-righteousness or self-justification. I start to do these things and it makes me feel better about myself. Like God now loves me more because I took communion this week. Or God now loves me more because I read my Bible a whole bunch this week. Those kind of things. We start to take on these, these things that are good things that God's called us to do. But instead of them pointing us more fully to who he is, we begin to twist it to make me feel better about what I've done. And we can easily slip into that. Look at what Paul says here in verse 18. And he seems to be talking about a specific person that's come into the church that's causing problems. But he says, let no one disqualify you. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Right. I think it's one person coming into the church doing this. You see it right there, puffed up with his sensuous mind. And he says that he's not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together. And I'll come back to that in just a second. But I want us to look at verse 18 for just a second that someone's come in and they started to kind of point to all these other things and they're insisting on what he calls asceticism. It's this idea of, of strict rules, strictly we're going to do these certain things in a certain way. We're going to put into place all these uh, disciplines and all this stuff. And that's the way that you're accepted. Now, obviously, I think this is obvious, but I'll say it anyway. Is he says, this asceticism and worship of angels, the bigger problem here is somebody's coming in and teaching you should worship angels. And that's why he spent so much time in chapter one and chapter two talking about the centrality of Jesus Christ and who he is. You don't need to worship angels. Jesus is everything you need. He is the one mediator between God and man. And so hopefully that's obvious in everything we've said, but it's there. But then he's talking about this other part of these strict disciplines and all these things. And if you do these things, then you'll be okay. And this idea comes from this this word that's translated asceticism. You can see it a few different ways. Part of it literally means a humility. And so you can go, well, well, that's a good thing, right? Like you point us to humility. But in the context and what Paul's talking about, it's really a false humility, right? Like, look at oh, I do this and, and, and I do it. And you're really kind of bragging on what you do, but you're saying I'm not really good. So, for example, we could say uh, we could start to talk about communion. Well, I go to I go to Church of the Apostles and we take communion every week and we take communion because we know that we need to see that Jesus is the center every single week, and we need to be reminded of that. Now, that church doesn't take communion every week. They must not need to be reminded, right? You see the back door of that, right? You can cloak it in humility. I need to be reminded every week, which is absolutely true. Please, I'm not making light of that. That's absolutely true that we do need to be reminded every week. But then when we start to kind of use it as look at what I do and they don't do, I'm actually using it for my own justification. I'm using it for, hey, look at what I've done. Look at what I'm doing every week that they're not doing. And that can be very subtle. You can start off of, I need to be reminded, and that's absolutely true. And then the wickedness of our heart, kind of the back door starts to slip in. That uh, I feel pretty good about myself because I take communion every week. And so that's what we kind of see that Paul's pointing us to. Be careful of that, that you don't start to let that slide in, right? That that starts to happen. And so they start to insist on different things here that that communion is different because Jesus tells us to do that regularly and we should be doing that. But what happens is this teacher comes in and he starts telling them to do all these different things that God hasn't clearly defined or said. And so that's where we get into the issue of, of legalism. Now, we like to cry in our culture today, legalism over everything. Right. Anybody says you should do anything. Oh, well, you're just a legalist. Leave me alone. Right. I'm walking in Christ and faith alone, and I don't need to worry about that. I want to be real careful when we talk about what legalism means in in the scope of what Scripture says. There's some things that God does not tell us clearly that are personal convictions. Maybe you have a personal conviction that you should wear a jacket to church, to the church gathering. You are the church. I see I even still slip into saying it, right? As we gather together as the body, maybe you think I need to wear a tie. And that's a personal conviction you have. And if that's your personal conviction, I'd say great to wear a tie every week. Honor God in that conviction. And that's wonderful. And that's good. Now, when you start to tell everyone else they need to wear a tie, now you've become a legalist. You're sliding into something that God doesn't say we have to do. And you're trying to make it a mandate for everybody. That's legalism. There's a difference, though, between obedience and legalism. Right. The scriptures say that if you're sleeping with anyone other than your spouse, that that's sin and that's adultery. And so if you're sleeping with your girlfriend and you come here and you're part of our body and you tell me that I'm going to go, you got to stop, man. That's disobedience. Don't do that. You can't cry legalism because that's obedience. And it clearly said so in scripture. Do you see the difference? There's things that God clearly tells us that we are to be obedient to do. And then there's some things that are personal convictions and they're different. And so we need to be careful when we walk that line. But we also need to be very careful that we don't call things that are obedience legalism. We're not to neglect meeting together regularly. And so if you slide into the I'm spiritual but not religious and I don't need anyone else, that's disobedience. If you're claiming to be a Christian, that's disobedience. And so we need to be careful on when we say that, but we also need to say it when it's clear uh, disobedience to what God has called us to. And so the second way we miss it is when we begin to make those things uh, the means of our justification. Look at me. I'm doing this and I'm doing it really well. Third way we miss it. There's another part here that I want us to see in the way that we miss it, that we've we've got making it about the act itself, but then making about justifying ourselves. But then the third one I want us to see is what he says right here at the end. So pick up at verse 20, 20 to 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as it were, you're still alive in the world? And do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that are all perish as they are used. According to human precepts and teachings, they indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And the third thing I would say is that we start to slip in and miss is we can begin to think and see that the things we do and the the guardrails we put up and the rules we make and the disciplines that are there. And oftentimes those are good and they're for good reason. So please hear me in the way I'm saying that there are a lot of things we do and things we put in place because it helps us. It helps us to walk in holiness. It helps us to walk following God more fully. But. If we begin to think more and more rules are going to kill sin and change our heart, we have been deceived. If we begin to think that I just need more rules added to this and then that will fix my my desire for sin, the sinful desires of my heart that will not do it. It's only Christ alone that can do that. It's a spiritual transformation that takes place as you put your faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to change you. And if you think you slip into thinking that I can just uh, put more rules and more rules and more rules in place and that will change my heart, that's not necessarily true. Now, the rules and the things you do and the disciplines you put in your life can help lead you to seeing God more fully. They can be useful in your life, but you need to go into them with your eyes wide open. But your discipline of reading your Bible is not magically going to make you more holy just by sitting there and reading your Bible. It's the Holy Spirit illuminating your heart and mind and pointing you more fully to Christ that's going to change you. Do you see the difference? And so when we slip into thinking, I just need more rules, and I just need more things, and I just need more guardrails, and then that somehow will magically make it happen, it won't. It's not going to work. It's, it's like if we were, you can pick any issue today. I was talking about just a second ago, different ways that people dress whether you think you should wear a jacket or a tie or whatever. In our culture today, we have flown way far to one side of of, uh, in modest dress. Immodesty is in, right? You can dress however you want, as provocatively as you want. In our society, that's good and right. and People go, that's great. By the way, that's disobedience to what Scripture says because there's a clear picture of what a godly woman looks like, and she dressed modestly. And by the way, that's very helpful practically. It's helpful for men in lust of the eyes. There's a lot of good things that God's doing with that. But I want to go back to that for just a second. What if we all maybe agree as believers that modest dress is a good thing? If we could somehow get enough politicians to embrace that and outlaw immodest dress, would it fix the heart conditions that are there? Well, no, it wouldn't change the hearts, even if we outlawed it. Even if we could somehow put a lot more rules in place that would safeguard and put all these different things, maybe it would help in some small ways, but it wouldn't change the heart issue. Right? There's an absolute rebellion against God and what he's called us to. There's different things that are going on that only the gospel can fix. And so we can start to miss it and slide into this kind of we need more rules and all these things because we forget that it's Christ alone that can change our hearts. And we can start to put things in different places. Now, again, please hear me. I'm trying to keep the the balance on this. Rules are good, right? Rules do help constrain evil. We do want to to have those guardrails in place because they help us, right? That's why we have rules with our children. Even if my kids don't understand and their heart's still rebellious, I still put rules in place so they don't get run over by a car, right? There's certain things that are good and we want to do. But that just we need to go into those with our eyes open, saying that it's only the spirit's job that's actually going to change our heart. And so those are three ways that we miss it kind of on the legalistic side. But there's one more here I want to look at real quickly, kind of on the other side. This this, I'm uh, spiritual, but not religious. And so look at this person he's describing in verse 18 and 19. We have read 18, but read it again with me. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. Right now, the head, he told us just before in chapter one is Christ, right? He's describing Christ in 118. He says he is the head of the body, the church. And so by the context, we know he's talking about Jesus. He says, so this guy's come in and he's got visions and he's got this sensuous mind and he's got all these things going for him and he's trying to talk everybody into it. And it's a devoid of Jesus. And I think part of the picture you see is his sensuous mind and he's puffed up without reason is this is growing kind of in him being on his own. Right. I believe it's this. I feel we should be doing this. Right. And he comes in and begins to teach and and draw different people away from Christ and these different things. And so you kind of almost see a picture there of this, this spiritual, but not religious, right, that I can do what I want and I can operate how I want and what that looks like. And so you kind of see that picture there, maybe a little bit of a stretch there, but I think there's part of that in his sensuous mind. And he's talking about being cut off from Christ and from the body, because look at what it says in verse 19. He's not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. There's a picture there that the body of Christ grows together with Christ as the head knit together. We're a body knit together. We talk about this. Paul talks about this in all different ways. Uh, Corinthians, probably the most obvious We all have different spiritual gifts. We need one another. We grow together in that. And so the picture that we can miss it is we can kind of think I can go off alone and it's just me and God and I don't need anyone else. And that can lead to all kinds of problems, right? You never see that picture. Now that doesn't mean there's not times of you being alone and seeking God. There absolutely are, right? That's absolutely true. But it's never devoid of community in your life. It's always both. It's both and. And you oftentimes end up with some weird things when it's just only you and God alone and nobody else is involved. And so that's not completely always the case. But there's a picture here of this guy coming in with the mind that's not seeking Christ and then injecting these things in. And so we can miss it on both sides, both ends of the spectrum, whether we have lots and lots of rules and we get very legalistic. Or if we just get this, I'm very spiritual and I'll do it on my own. And so both sides, we can miss it. And so I want us to think just lastly, for briefly for just a minute, how do we avoid those traps? Right? Hopefully you can start to see in your own heart how you can subtly slip into those on different sides. I certainly can at different times for sure. Right? That back door to self-righteousness and those different things. And so how do we combat that? How do we begin to walk fully trusting what God's called us to avoiding slipping into those? And so look with me at verses 13, 14 and 15, because I think there's a real good picture that that helps keep us right in the middle. And you were once I and mean, you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so he gives you this clear picture of who we are apart from Christ. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You were operating in your flesh. You were trying to do all these things on your own. And then Christ comes in and he causes you to be alive. He does what you cannot do for you. And he begins to show you. He sets you free from this idea that I need to earn my worth before God. That's what a fleshly heart does. Right. Apart from Christ, we think I need to keep the rules. I need to do some things. I need to make sure I'm doing them well enough. And then God will accept me. And he says right here, that's not the case. You are made whole in Christ by what he does for you and not what you do for yourself. And he says this picture of when you see that, when you see that you were in your uncircumcision and that he brings you to life, as it says there in verse 13, You were dead and God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We slip into self-righteousness when we forget that our righteousness is Jesus. I begin to say, no, 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 it's what I do. And look, I do this better than those people. That's because I'm forgetting that I'm already completely and totally forgiven by what Jesus has done and nothing else. And so the, the only way to combat that is to see clearly the gospel. The fullness of what Christ has done for me. It's not my performance, but his performance. Right? It's not about these things, but him, the things that they point to. And so he says, you you put your face, you you, you turn your face to Christ. Right? The shadows that point to the substance, the greater substance, which is Jesus. Right? What happens when it gets really, really, really bright? Right? What happens to shadows when it is so bright they go away? <laughs> And so we, we see the shadows that point us to the real thing and then we turn our eyes to the real things and the shadows kind of fade to the background. And then when we go back and we begin to do the things that he told us to like communion, it's not just something we go through. It's pointing us to Jesus shed his his blood in his body and he laid down his life for us. And it's all about him. And it's not about the way we take it or the way it looks or any of those things. It's all about him. And that's the only way we escape making those things as we see him more clearly. Now, there's a picture I want you to think about. and We'll end with this this morning. There's a picture here when we think about why do we fall into those things? Why do I feel like I need more rules and I need these things and I need this? I'm going to add more and more stuff. I'm going to do that. And why do we fall into self-justification? We fall into self-righteousness and self-justification because we think we haven't done enough. Or we fall into more and more rules and more and more things because we go, oh, I can't do this. Well, you can't, but Christ can to the spirit working in you. He says you were uncircumcised in your flesh. God has now made you alive together with him. And then Paul gives you this incredible picture to kind of drive home that point. And it's something maybe we miss when we just read through. But look at what he says in verse 14 and 15. He says he's he's forgiven us all our trespasses, 13 and then verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When you begin to doubt and you think I need to do some things, when you begin to slip into those things, you're believing the lies of the enemy. You haven't done enough. You need to add some rules. You need to add some things. You need to do that. We start to fall into those false accusations that come at us. But what Paul says here, he gives you this incredible picture. What you think about when Jesus was crucified, who crucified Jesus Christ? The Romans. If you know anything about crucifixion, they would take you out to the edge of the city and they would hang you up in front of everybody. And they did it very publicly for very good reason in their minds. It was to keep the peace. It was to make sure that everyone knew that here was this guy in Jesus's case claiming to be the king of the Jews. And we're going to show you that he's no king. He's not king over our king, Caesar. And so we're going to hang him very publicly and we're going to put above his head king of the Jews and we're going to put him up there so that anybody who thinks about rising up against this against Rome, this is what happens to you. And so that's what they did. They did it all the time. Anybody who started to have an inkling of insurrection, we're going to put you up there. And we're going to make it very obvious and very clear. And then Paul says, and I want you to get this picture. He says, Jesus went to the cross and he took your sin and your guilt and the accusations that the enemy throws at you. And he nailed them to the cross and he put them to open shame and display. You're not good enough. Jesus says, I am. And I've defeated it and I've won and now I've nailed it to the cross and I'm making sure that everybody sees. And so Paul takes this symbol that Rome used and he flips it upside down and he says, Jesus has put to open shame the rulers and the principalities and the things that come at you and they're done. And it's because of Jesus. And he gives you this incredible picture. He says, don't you dare start to fall back into thinking, oh, I've got to compare myself to other people. No, Jesus, righteousness is yours fully by what he's done, because he nailed your sin to the cross and he defeated it when he raised from the dead. And so he gives this picture that people in Paul's day would have seen and gone. Yes, it's just like what Rome does to all those things. Jesus has now done to any accusation or any place, and it's all Christ and nothing else. And so it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of how we begin to to escape falling into those traps. Now, as we move into chapter three, as we do that next week, Paul starts to tell us what does it look like to walk that out, to walk by the spirit, trusting Christ, not falling into those traps. And so we'll come back to that next week. But I hope you see clearly that image that he gives us as we end this week, that we don't have to fall into those things that Christ has done every bit of it himself. And so let's pray. God, we thank you for the absolute beauty and truth of your word. That, a, that an evil picture of torture to do away with people that were raising up against the government, that you have made a beautiful picture of what you've done for us. That you have nailed our sins to the cross. That you give us your righteousness and that we can rest in that. And for that, we can never, ever thank you enough. We thank you for the ways that you love us. We thank you for your saving grace in Jesus. And it is his name that we pray. Amen.